0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 2. Our text is going to be taken from verse 15, but what I want to do is read from verses 8 and through 14, which were the verses that we considered last time when I preached to you. Please follow along as I begin with verse 8 from Genesis, excuse me, yeah, I should begin with actually verse 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree to grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to the water of the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hiddekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth is, the fourth r- river is the Euphrates. We'll pause there and we'll seek the face of God once again for understanding His holy word. Holy Father, we bless you and praise you that you've given to us this precious account of what you did when you created the heavens and the earth, and then that special place that you prepared for the man and the woman that you created. And we pray that as you gave them special responsibilities that you would be pleased to enable us to understand what our responsibilities are and how these things apply to our lives, and that you would not only understand them, but that by your grace we will put them into practice. May your spirit be shed abroad in our hearts this morning. We pray it in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. It is often said that there is nothing that ruins a good story like a little bit of research. You know, how stories, that get embellished throughout the years, and especially old, old stories. And you go to search it out, and it isn't quite as exciting, the actual thing that actually did happen. So I don't know exactly about the details of this. I haven't had time to research it. But in the 11th century, King Henry III of Bavaria, he grew tired of court life and the pressures of being a monarch. And he made application to Prior Richard at the local monastery, and he asked to be accepted as a contemplative and spend the rest of his life in that monastery instead of being king. Your Majesty, said Prior Richard, do you understand that the pledge here is one of obedience? That will be hard for you because you have been king. In other words, people obeyed you. Now you have to obey us. I understand, said Henry, the rest of my life I will be obedient to you as Christ leads you. Then I will tell you what to do, said Prior Richard. Go back to your throne and serve faithfully in the place where God has put you. But when King Henry died, a statement was written The king learned to rule by being obedient. When we tire of our roles and our responsibilities and we think that there's something else that we could do that would be more interesting, more exciting, it helps to remember that God has planted us in a certain place, in a certain time, with certain talents and gifts and opportunities, and we are to be obedient and serve him in those roles to which he's called us, whether it is a teacher, whether it's a mother, whether it's a father, whatever it might be. And Christ expects us to be faithful to those places where he has put us. And when he returns, we will then rule together with him. This morning, the focus of our sermon is going to be on verse 15. And it was my original plan to go on to speak about verses 16 and 17, where God places Adam and Eve under a charge To obey and keep a rule. There was only one rule that they had to keep. But obedience was within a vocation to which God assigned Adam and Eve. And we're going to consider that vocation in verse 15 this morning. And that verse reads, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. This verse has to do with his vocational duties in the garden. But before we look at that verse, let me remind you of the setting of that verse, which is the garden that God had planted, and that's especially why we read those verses once again. We covered more than usual number for what we've done so far in Genesis. I hope to get to the place where we even sometimes cover a whole chapter. But in verses 4 to 14, which we looked at last time, there are three scenes that appear. The first is that of a barren land in verses 4 through 6. And in this section, we find that the land was without vegetation. It was without a farmer, and it was without, without uh, uh, that which we would care for the, uh, for the vegetation. It was without rain. There was no vegetation. Now, Strictly speaking, this doesn't mean there was no plant life whatsoever when we compare with chapter 1. But what was missing was the kind of vegetation that grows as a result of human cultivation. That's why right away God says there's no farmer there's no person to take care of it verse 5 says no man to till the ground so it's those kind of plants that were not there in that place where God had created and there was also no rain we don't know exactly there's a difference of opinion interpretation whether the verse in verses 5 and 6 speak of water coming up on from ground or whether it's a mist that fell upon the the soil, but whatever it was, it wasn't perfect enough for what God intended for Adam and Eve in the place where he wanted to put them. So that's the first scene, the scene of a barren land that needs to be remedied. The second scene is that of a unique creature. Verse 7, And The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Now these two scenes... The scene of a barren land and the scene of a unique creature. They make us wonder, well, what's God going to do now? From this barren land that we've looked at, and then this unique, special creature that God put there, we're led to ask, well, is God going to leave Adam in this barren condition? Is going to leave it in these conditions that are not perfect? And so this brings us to the third scene, that of a lush garden verses 8 through 14. And its description, it reminds us of the most beautiful botanical garden that we have ever seen. Only it was not merely just filled with beautiful plants, but also plants that would provide for every one of Adam and Eve's desires. And with respect to this idyllic place, our guide and tour, our garden tour noted several features. And I think there were four in particular. And for one thing, it was a very real place. The description that we have is stunningly different from the creation myths that abounded in the ancient Near East. It contains very specific geographical references. In verse 8, we are told that it was eastward in Eden. So it was east of where Palestine was, in other words. And two of its rivers still exist, the Tigris and the Euphrates. And the other two rivers, we don't know what rivers they were, perhaps the Genesis Flood. Changed the water flow in the land, probably did, and so we just don't know what those two rivers are. But it is a real place that could have the rivers named and where, it's, where it was put. And it was also a prepared place. We read in verse 8 the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And God is pictured, you see, as a gardener. He sets out and he prepares a large area of land as a special place of abundant provision, refreshment, and enjoyment. In Genesis thirteen ten, it's called the Garden of the Lord. And we read in that place that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere like the Garden of the Lord. And the biblical descriptions of this garden evoke images, you see, of a carefully planned, beautiful botanical garden, lush with vegetables and fruits and everything that would be needed. And we noted thirdly, it was a delightful place. Among the trees planted was every variety of trees that were good for food, verse 9. Recently I was a sucker to listen for a while to an online pitch for a certain nutritional supplement, and this claimed to supply what was missing from our food sources. And it was claimed in this uh, spiel that I listened to for a while that even our fruits and vegetables which we buy in our grocery stores, they no longer provide the nutrients that they once provided. But on a certain island, none of the people are overweight and none of the people are stricken with heart disease and none of them have cancer. And supposedly, therefore, the inventor of this particular supplement went to that island discovered what was missing from our diet and uh, brought back the ingredients that are unique to those people that land and for a hefty sum you can get it all in a bottle. It all sounded great, especially to a man that struggles in ways he never had to when he was younger. And it sounded like this is something that might be helpful until I read some independent reviews. And it was hard to figure out which ones were independent because even there were some that came right from this company that pretended to be independent reviews, comparing everything, and of course rating this one the best. But we may be sure that in every way what God gave to Adam and Eve, these fruits and these vegetables were perfectly good. And in addition to every tree that was good for food, God provided every tree that's pleasant to the eyes. He created what was pleasant and beautiful to look at, utilizing a tremendous variety of color and form. And this is why the name of this garden, Eden, literally means pleasure or delight. And we also saw, fourthly, that it was a life-giving place, a place that has the tree of life and these life-sustaining rivers described in the verses we read. Now, having been reminded of the setting of our text in verses 15 through 17, we have an account of two types of responsibilities. They describe Adam's vocational duties in verse 15. And then in verses 16 and 17, we see his spiritual duties. There was this tree he was not to eat of. He was able to eat the other ones. And this was a spiritual test. And then later on, and we're going to have time to get to this down the road We come to his family duties that are described at the end of the chapter. Now with respect to his vocational duties in verse 15, let me just read that verse once again. This is going to be our focus. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Now there was no magic in Eden. Gardens don't look after themselves. They tend to get overgrown. They're not self-perpetuating. They're not self-pruning. And after a word about the vocational setting, this verse identifies the vocational tasks, and they were connected with the garden. Now, with reference to the vocational setting, and that's our first point that we want to look at briefly, we read in verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden... Of Eden, And in a general sense, this verse duplicates what we read earlier in verse 8. Both verses say that God put the man in the garden. But in this place, the Hebrew word that's translated put is a different word. It's the word naka, a word that's used to describe rest or safety, which God gave to his people in the land of promise. No longer have to fight for every inch of their, of their existence, but a place where you can settle down and feel safe and rest. And that's the word that's used here to describe what God did with reference to Adam and then later on to Eve. And both uh, the issue of rest and safety and also it's been used later on in the Old Testament to refer to dedication of something that's offered to the Lord. And both those senses appear to lie behind the use of the word here in verse 15. Man was put into the garden where he could rest and be safe. And he was put there in God's presence, as it were, with a place of fellowship with God, a place where he can dedicate his life and his energies to the service of the glory of God. He was put there for these purposes. God put him in the garden, which as Luther puts it, God intended to be the dwelling place and royal headquarters of man, as into a castle and temple. This garden was like the most beautiful temple, really, that you've ever seen. That's where God put Adam, a holy place, a pure place, a wonderful place where he might live. And it's in that setting that God gives him a particular job to do. Now, having noticed the vocational setting, I want you to notice in the next place that verse 15 tells us about his vocational tasks. Vocation is our calling in life. You remember we preached a whole series on that. It is our calling as to what God would have us to do with our lives. Well, Adam was placed at Eden, and here's what we are told, to tend and keep it. Life in Eden was never intended to be a long summer holiday in which Adam would just lounge around in a hammock doing nothing. People have this idea of heaven, too, that people are just going to be just strumming guitars and, and maybe there's holier instruments than guitars, some people think. And we're just going to have a big vacation for thousands and thousands of years. Well, I don't believe that in any way that God's going to let us be idle in, in the glory any any less any more than than in this perfect state here in the Garden of Eden. Right away, God gave Adam work to do, and the labor wasn't wasn't with the thorns and the thistles and all the problems of work as of now we have, now have it. But it was pleasant. It was satisfying. It was full of delight. A sense of of, of accomplishment, and what was done at the end of the day was, would be refreshing to his soul. It was free from the weariness and trouble that we now have. But even in this idyllic setting, it was never God's intention that Adam would succumb to a life of indolent repose. Now before we consider what it means here in particular, where it says God put him there to tend and to keep the garden, those are the words used in the New King James, I want to mention briefly that there's another interpretation that's gained traction among some of the commentators. And just I want you to just hang in with me for just two or three minutes while we contrast two different interpretations. The whole sermon hinges on this interpretation. And these commentators, they note that in the Hebrew, there is a pronoun that's attached to each of these two verbs. The verbs translated tend and keep. And in each case, the pronoun is feminine, whereas the Hebrew word for garden is masculine. And therefore they say these two verbs, they should be understood as infinitives, without endings, without these personal endings. And they say, therefore, this leaves us with the reading that God put them there to serve and to obey. And as I encountered this interpretation, I hadn't run into it in the past, it puzzled me because there were various reasons why I believed that, we should stick with the traditional interpretation which by the way is represented in the verses I think that would be in the versions that would be in, in your laps whether it be the King James or whether it be the New King James or the New American or the ESV. And so even though I use Hebrew to study the text out I'm not an expert Hebraist. And so because of this I wrote uh, two of the best Hebrew scholars that I know Dr. Gonzalez and Dr. Grumbles both of them Old Testament specialists. And both of them assured me that in the Hebrew, the gender attached to verbs is not always consistent with the supposed antecedent. And in addition to the concerns that I had about this new interpretation, they brought up other reasons why the traditional interpretation is correct. And one of these considerations is that it's not necessary that the word garden is the antecedent of these verbs, but possibly it is eden, which is Feminine, just like these two verbs. Well, I could go into the, all the other complexities and all the other reasons why the traditional interpretation is better, but simply I want to say that I'm satisfied that the traditional interpretation that you have there in your laps, I think just virtually all of you, is that which is the, the God-intended interpretation of the, of the text. The two verbs that are used in verse 15, they picture the vocation of Adam as a botanical garden horticulturalist, or as one has described him, a park keeper, God's estate manager. But what were the tasks that were given to Adam? Well, the first task of these two words is that he was to tend the garden, or as the New American translated, translated, he was to cultivate the garden, or work the garden, that is, work the soil, as it is in the, in the English standard. if the Hebrew word is often translated serve in other contexts, but in the early chapters of Genesis, and here's just another reason why I think tend or work the soil cultivated, this is the best interpretation, because right here in the early chapters of Genesis, this is the way in which the word is used. For, for instance, chapter 2 and verse 5 it says before any plant of the field was on the earth and before any herb of the field had grown for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground. There's the same word, to till the ground. Chapter three and verse 23, we read, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And chapter four and verse two, chapter four, and verse 12, it's the same basic idea. That he was to work the ground, he was to till the ground, he was to cultivate the ground. That's the idea of the verb that's used there. So that's the first part of his vocational. And then the next word that's translated to keep the garden, the Hebrew word shamar, it's used as keep the garden in the New King James, New American, and ESV. I think pretty much all of them are united in this in- in translation. And the meaning of the root that is used here is to exercise great care over something, necessarily to guard something so that nothing goes wrong. And frequently it's used as a synonym from another Hebrew word which means to protect. And the same root that is found in our text is also used, for instance, in, Hebrew, in Genesis three twenty-four, 24. we read that God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden and he stationed this cherubim with flaming swords And listen to this, who were on guard, to guard, here's the same Hebrew word, to guard the way to the tree of life. So what's God saying to Adam here? Why did he put him there? I want you to guard this garden. That's the task. Not only to till it, but to keep it, to guard it. And after the fall, it was necessary for gardeners to build fences around their gardens, to keep the rabbits and the groundhogs and the deer out of their garden. When we have when we planted a fairly large garden way back in the back part of our property many years ago when we had more energy, we had to had to build a fence. We had to keep the groundhogs off. I I trapped 18 of them the first summer. There was so many of them they were just gonna eat everything. And I found out you need to put the fence even about a foot into the ground because they'll dig right underneath it. And so we had to protect it, you see, from these intruders that would destroy all of our work. And here in Genesis 2, when God assigns Adam with the duty of keeping the garden, there also might be a sinister overtone to this charge. When God tells him to keep it, to guard it, later on we read that it was the duty of the Levites to guard the tabernacle. The same Hebrew word is used. Numbers 153 and 338, they were to guard the tabernacle to keep intruders from breaking in. And what invader was the first man to guard against? Why was he supposed to guard this garden? We find out the answer to that in chapter 3. When the serpent, the worst of all gate crashers, he appears on the scene and he ruins everything. He was to guard it against that intrusion. Now before we move on to the the next main heading, I literally had interpreted a to to cover also verses 16 and 17. But we're not going to do that this morning. I want to take the rest of our time and open up some practical lessons that come out of what we have just studied. The first practical lesson is this. We learn in this place that physical labor is not the consequence of sin. In the biblical narrative, work enters the picture before sin enters the picture. Even if man had never sinned, he would have work to do. Before the fall, tending the guard, sowing, planting and pruning, these things were, were done with pleasure and with zeal. There was no thorns and difficulties. It was perfectly wonderful work that Adam did. And even if man had never sinned, he would continue to have work to do. And after the fall, it became wearisome, be tedious and even painful. So God mercifully assigned a day of rest so that we could all have rest from our labors. But even before the fall, it was God's intention that man would use his time profitably and work to the glory of God. You remember the story I told you at the beginning of this sermon about King Henry III. He was told by this monk who seemed to have some biblical perspective here that you're going to please God more in your vocation, back where you are as a king. That's where God wants you to to obey and to serve in that location. And throughout history, there have been people that have thought that they had risen above work. And some of them think, well, I'm going to just be pious and do just pious things and forget about work for the rest of my life. You know, the early church, there were certain people that went and lived in caves, there were some that even lived on top of pillars and they just, lived, they just lived for years on top of a pillar and did nothing. And people had to grow food for them and hoist it up to them to help them survive and the like. But there was this idea that that was more pious. And at the time of the Reformation, the reformers, they were constrained to condemn the monks and the nuns who thought they were obeying God better and in a superior manner by abstaining from ordinary labor. And during our current pandemic, there have been thousands that have been very happy to take government checks. And in many of these cases, it's deliberate unemployment. They could easily be back in their jobs. And this deliberate unemployment is degrading and soul-destroying. But to the contrary, labor is a blessing, labor in itself. It's not a curse. There's nothing wrong with looking for a line of work that is... Challenging to you that it's exciting to you that that brings a certain amount of satisfaction, and there's nothing wrong with looking for that which would give us even joy at many occasions but let, but let 's never imagine that certain kinds of work are beneath us what would what did God give Adam to do in the garden? his labor in the garden during that time of his life in which he was most noble at, this was his the pinnacle this was the peak of his life. He was never more holy than he was here in the garden. And what was he doing? How did he bring glory to God in that setting? He was dressing the garden and protecting it. And this informs us that it was worthy of his dignity. It was worthy of his exalted state as an image bearer of God to get his fingers dirty and engage even in the mundane task of caring for a garden. Now in our day, there are thousands They go to great debt. They go to college, they go to graduate school and all the rest because they're told, well, you can make all kinds of more money if you get a college degree and there's some truth in that. But not everybody is called to do that kind of work. And so young people, don't imagine for a moment as you think about the life that's ahead of you, don't imagine that that for a moment that it's beneath you to learn a trade, that it's beneath you to to learn maybe carpentry or electricity or learn how to fix cars or plumbing or painting or, or nursing. Ask God to show you where your talents really lie. And don't be afraid to get your fingers greasy for the glory of God. Mike Rowe, you know, has these shows Dirty Jobs. And it's a wonderful thing that he's done. I wonder if he's read the Bible a little bit and thought about how, how there are certain jobs that the people get their hands dirty, but they're very necessary jobs. I thank God for the mechanic that is really close to us. I never see him with, with lily-white hands. They're always greasy and probably can't even get them clean at night but he's a man that never robs me. Never has, he never recommends any jobs that really don't need to be done. He saves me all kinds of money. I can trust this guy. And people like that are rare in our society. And in some way, you see, he is doing that which God has called him to do. And so the first thing we learn is that physical labor is not the consequence of sin. It's often the particular way in which God would have you or me glorify him. But then secondly, by way of practical lesson, here we have a theological foundation for caring for creation. Both creation accounts describe humanity at its apex. It is humanity at its best state. But humanity's favored status, it doesn't mean that the rest of creation doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that it could just be debused or it could just be destroyed. In Genesis 1, man's dominion over the earth and its creatures, which is to be conducted not in a destructive manner, but in a manner that reflects the God in whose image God created him. That's what God gave him. He, he said, I'll give you dominion over the, over the creatures and so on, and he, he has dominion. And yet this is not to be done in a destructive manner. And here we have creation care demonstrated on a smaller More intimate scale within the garden that God gave him. Adam was to cultivate and protect the garden. And the status of rule and dominion over creation, it was never intended by God to make Adam an exploiter, but he was rather to be a protector. And even though the book of Job speaks of creatures that man has never been able to completely tame, in Genesis 2 we see man... Not exercising his dominion by abusing and bludgeoning the animals, but he names them. And, that, and, and, and we know that it is God's intention that human beings are to care for and to protect the environment that God put them in. And we are told right here what Adam was to do about the environment. He was to work it. He was to protect it. And this was assigned to man when there was only one man and then one man and one woman. And how much more should we care for our planet now that there are about 8 billion inhabitants on the earth? Well, I'm not advocating the kind of panic and desperation that's manifested in the emotional outbursts of climate at- activist Greta Thunberg. You see her breaking down in tears. That's why they bring her into, into the United Nations. They want to play on everybody's emotions and and here's the next generation where you're going to be so mean that, that you, you could totally give her a, a totally ruined planet if you don't listen to her. And she gets all emotional about it. And I'm not, I'm not saying that we need to get into that desperate kind of a mode. A wise use of fossil fuels alongside the development of technologies that capture renewable energy in a manner that doesn't destroy the nation. This could be advocated without having to resort to the desperate, uh, desperate measures and proposals uh, as one politician famously said that if we don't do this the whole earth is going to be destroyed in 12 years. So I'm not advocating that. And the issues are very complex. And I don't pretend having mastered all the details of how we should address these things. It is not even a settled issue, for instance, as to the gravity of the situation with reference to our climate. And as we move along, wise stewardship of what God has given us, it's often going to be something that's involved balancing one issue over against another issue. And so we need to consider these things. And this one hits home to me. If we're gonna save all the trees, do we have to quit making baseball bats? Is that, is that something we gotta do? Well, we better keep all the trees because they capture, you see, the carbon dioxide. Better not have baseball games anymore, because it takes a lot of bats, to keep on breaking them. Is that what we gotta do? God gave us a lot of coal, by the way. So maybe we're just to leave it on the ground and there's no way in wisdom we can use that coal? And just because inferior standards resulted in a nuclear meltdown in Chernobyl does this mean that we have to banish nuclear power altogether? There are questions that we have to wrestle with, you see. But just because some people try to use the issue to push their radical political agendas and to vastly expand the role of the state, it doesn't mean that this is an issue that Christians should ignore. Now, many proposals, they would result in tremendous economic hardship. The poor, they often suffer the most. When the gas prices go up, They don't have all the kind of extra money that affects them in a a a meaningful way. And such extreme proposals, they they tend to come from people that have no faith in God. And God is determined to keep this planet until Jesus returns. That's why they go into panic mode. They don't have any faith in a God that protects this planet. And they also tend to, these proposals to come frequently from people that make the earth their God. But completely ignoring what kind of planet we're going to pass on to our children, completely ignoring what we're going to pass on to our grandchildren, this is also wrong. And consider this. The home that God provided for Adam, what did God give to Adam? He didn't make a huge modern city. That's not what he gave him. He gave him a garden. He gave him, for put in different terms, a farm. And maybe it might be a good idea to keep this planet looking like a garden. So this is our second lesson that comes right out of this passage, a theological foundation for caring for creation. But now in the third place, our text, it also has implications concerning creativity. Now for a chapter and a half, we've been considering the wonderful creativity of God in shaping and fashioning a vast universe that he made, a planet to which there is amazing biodiversity and incredible beauty. There's great beauty in what, that which God made. That's what he created. And here in Genesis 2.15, God puts the first man in a beautiful garden. And he says to the first man, and God has done all, all these things. He says to him, in effect, now it's your turn, Adam. I made this. You're to take care of it. You are to imitate me. Here's a special garden I made just for you. I want you to take care of it. Tend it. See that it doesn't get all overgrown and ugly. See to it that it remains pleasant to the eyes, as we read earlier in this chapter. So what do we mean when we refer to creativity? Well, does this include Thomas Edison's invention of electricity, which has been a blessing to billions? Of course it includes that. Does it include the invention of computer technology? Of course Does it include the creation over 100 years ago of such a thing as the aqueduct that brought, even to this day, 100 years ago, this aqueduct brings water from a large lake all the way over the Sierra Nevada mountains into the great city of Los Angeles. And it was a huge project. It it took great engineering to, to accomplish that project. And it was, you see, creativity, you see, that made that kind of a project possible. But is this the only kind of creativity that God has in mind? Is creativity limited to inventions that enrich our lives? Is it primarily and only the creation of wealth? But when we consider the example of our creator, we discover that it includes such things, but it includes even more. It includes the creation of a beautiful world and a beautiful garden. You see, God didn't say well here's a little mud hut right, right along this ugly creek and I don't want you to idolize you see the beautiful things so I've just made you I don't want to, I'm not going to put you in a beautiful garden because that, you might make an idol of that garden you're going to just live in this ugly place that's where I'm going to put you you tend the garden there and you can be productive and that's not what God did and there's an implication the creation of beauty in the world we are called upon to create beauty, to imitate God and what he did. And later on, we're going to study the, mo- the next beautiful thing that God made. And this was the most beautiful thing that Adam ever saw. God gave him a wife. She was beautiful to him. And there was a beautiful marriage that was arranged right off the bat. And as the Bible unfolds, we also read of man's discovery, for instance, of music. And especially of David's use of the harp to praise God. Remember how he used it to to quiet the the, the disturbed king's King Saul's heart when he, when he was distressed. And there were compositions of psalms for God's worship. And sometimes these tunes are even named. We don't we know set to the to the lily of the dawn or something like this. I can't remember some of those titles. Well, we don't even know what that tune is, but. Originally, they knew what their tune that was. I can't imagine it was an ugly tune that everybody would, would say, oh boy, we got to sing that one again. No. It was, there were some favorites, it seems, because they were especially attractive and people loved to sing those particular hymns, those psalms of praise to God. And does this not remind us that even back then, there were ways in which God wanted his worship to be beautiful? And didn't God know that a beautiful tune? as it were, linked together with wonderful words, lifts our hearts up and prays to God. And so this is an aspect of creativity. And we live in a society that's rebelled against God. And one of the manifestations of this rebellion is ugly music and ugly art and ugly buildings. You go in Washington D.C., it's all utilitarian. So many of these buildings have been put up. They're just plain ugly. And you, you look at a lot of the, the art that goes on, listen to the music that goes on, it, it's just ugly. And did you ever wonder why we read in the captions of some of these psalms of, 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 of beautiful tunes and, and then now we're having this ugly music? This is a society that's rebelled against God. A while back, I think maybe I mentioned this on some other occasion, I visited Mass Mocha Art Museum in North Adams and I've always been interested in art. yes, there are other aspects of art. I I, I much prefer the Hudson River paintings and such. But I wanted to go there just to see what they had on display. It's a huge place. And there are some abstract creations that are beautiful. There can be abstract art that's that's beautiful. But a lot of what I saw was just, it, it was the language of nihilism. It was the language of disorder, the language of despair and it made, made my heart ache for what our country's like now. It's not enough that our creator and our creativity produce something useful or something that modern critics would like. When God was done creating, he said it was very good. This is really wonderful what I made. And our inventions, you see, our music, our art, the way we decorate our houses, the way we run our homes even, All of these things should have this aim that we can stand back and we can look at what's been done and we can say, that's good. That's very good, we might even be able to say. And that God might also be able to say, that's really good. So what about your life? Is there some aspect of your life that's ugly, that's not good? Is there some aspect of it, of of your life that it really can't be said, this is really good? Well our creativity, it should make our homes beautiful. It should make our marriages beautiful. But it should go even beyond the walls of our homes. As Christian artists, as Christian musicians, as Christian office workers, as Christian computer programmers, Christian health workers, and Christian husbands, and Christian wives, We should be, as Christians, oases in an ugly world. We should be creators of beauty and order in the formless and disordered places of this world. I think the church should be beautiful. And here I'm not thinking that we need to raise funds to build a crystal cathedral. That's not the beauty. And although I think that we have a beautiful facility and God's been pleased to give us the money for it, but especially there should be inward beauty that people more and more can see. And this doesn't mean the issue of our church being beautiful, but it has to be externally beautiful. But as people visit our church, what we present to them should be beautiful. The serpent invaded the garden, and the garden was very attractive. And his appeals, they sound very attractive. And there's a kind of worship that's just a product of human invention, even though it's appealing to the senses. And the beauty that we present, it needs to conform to the scriptures. But given the boundaries you see that are laid out in scripture, Christians should be able to come in among us and they should be able to hear us speak. They should be able to hear us sing. And they should be able to be among us. And they should be able to say something like what Paul said of the Colossians. Even though I'm absent in the flesh, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Colossians 2.5 There should be spiritual beauty in our life together as a church. And above all, dear people, we should commend the beauty of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's nothing in this vast beautiful world or this vast universe that compares to the beauty of the Lord Jesus. There's nothing that we want more than to see the king in his beauty in that land that is very far off, as Isaiah 33 puts it. We wish we could take our friends and loved ones and lead them literally into the presence of our beautiful Savior, and introduce them to him. But you and I, we are to be spiritual pictures of Jesus. That's what we are. We are Christians. That's the name that they gave to us early on. We are epistles of Christ, known and read by all men. And this beauty, it's not just to be seen in the fact that we wear clothes that are in style, or in expensive jewelry. It's not just in, you see, our tasteful makeup, but it's rather, as Peter puts it, in the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And Therefore, let this be your prayer and mine. Above all, when we think about being creators of beauty, may the mind of Christ, my Savior, live in me from day to day. By his love and power controlling all I do and say. May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea. Him exalting, self-abasing. This is victory. May his beauty rest upon me as I seek the lost to win. And may they forget the channel, seeing only him. And then finally, this brings me to this fourth practical lesson. God that Adam's appointed task it teaches us. And here I have in mind the spiritual aspect of the work that God assigned to Adam. Adam was to tend and to keep the garden. And something that Pastor Grumbles pointed out to me, something I subsequently found in some of the commentaries, is that these two Hebrew words translated tend or keep, tend and keep, or cultivate and guard. These two words are found together in a description that we have of the priests and the Levites that helped Aaron in the tabernacle. And here I'd like you to turn with me for a moment to Numbers chapter 3. I'm not going to go into a lot of details, but I want you to just see something quickly here. Numbers chapter 3. Actually, what I want to read, instead of the New King James, I want to read the English Standard, because I think it brings it out better. In verse 7, we read, About the Levites, they shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. There is these same two Hebrew words together in one verse. The word that's translated "keep guard is the same Hebrew word that we find in Genesis 2:15 that stresses that Adam was to keep or to guard the garden. And the word that's translated, they're to be ministered to their minister at the end of, of Hebrews 3:7. They're to minister at the tabernacle. It's, again, it's the same Hebrew word that is translated 10 or cultivate or work the garden in Genesis 2:15. And the same two words are found in the next verse in numbers three and verse 8. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister, there's the other word, at the tabernacle. Now while the priests served God in the tabernacle in what might have seemed to be a more glorious task, they were the actual ones that would would lead in the offering of sacrifices. These Levites assisted them in two very important ways. For one thing, they stood guard. They kept watch in front of the tabernacle. And they did this to keep unauthorized intruders from entering the tabernacle. Remember how Nadab and Abihu, they entered the tabernacle and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. The Lord killed them. Such intruders, they were to guard against them. And in verse 8, it is added that they stood guard also to protect the furnishings of the tabernacle. You remember when Uzzah touched the ark when it was not being moved in the proper manner? The furnishings were also to be protected. Unauthorized persons were not to handle these holy furnishings. You were to guard it, you see, from those things. And their second duty was the duty of ministering or serving in the tabernacle. And this especially refers to erecting the tabernacle, disassembling it when they moved, carrying the furnishings of the tabernacle when they marched. And the way that these two words are used in Numbers 3 and elsewhere, they tell us that Adam's vocation had a spiritual dimension to it. Adam's tasks, they were like a a Levitical priestly type of dimension to them. He was like a Levite, as it were, to serve and guard this temple garden that God had made for him. And it was, it's the same thing, you see, that you and I are called upon. We have holy duties, you see, in our vocation. Whatever we do is to be done for the glory of God. It's to be done as priestly work to the Lord. And we're to serve God in all that we do. And because our lives are lived in the presence of God, we're to guard that special presence. We are the temple of God. We are the temple of God when we meet together and even when we go apart from one another. We are the temple of God, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit and we are to guard those temples. We are to guard those bodies against the intrusion of anything that's vile or unclean or displeasing to the Lord. We are to guard against that. We are to guard against that which would come to the church, you see, that would be contrary to God's word. We are ever to be on guard against Satan and his temptations. We are to watch and pray lest we enter into temptation. And the same holds true for the church. All of us are priests in the house of God. In our gatherings, we need to remember that there's a sacredness to our gatherings. We're in God's temple, and our awesome holy God inhabits his temple. And therefore, all of us, and especially the pastors, are to humbly serve in this new covenant temple We are charged with keeping strange fire out. We are charged to keep out any strange practices that have not been authorized by the Lord. But let's not just think that our only service is what we do in the gathered assembly. As you go through the coming week, and as you are still the temples of the Holy Spirit, how are you to think about your work, your vocation to which God has called you? Do you see it as an act of service to the Lord? Do you see it as a blessing that has been given to you by God, a way in which you could glorify God, whether it's as a mechanic or electrician or carpenter or nurse or whatever it might be? And so we pray as we sometimes sing, teach me, my God and King, in all things thee to see. And what I do in anything to do it as for thee. All may of thee partake. Nothing can be so mean or nothing can be so lowly which with this motive for thy sake will not grow bright and clean. This is the famous stone that turns all to gold for that which God does touch and own cannot for less be told. Well, May God help you and me to tend and to keep the garden that God has given us. May the Lord help us to do our work as unto him realizing that manual labor is pleasing unto him and other labor to which God might have called us. Let's remember that we are to be creators of beauty and we are to be workers, as it were, tending the garden and keeping it holy, even our own tabernacles and also the tabernacle that we meet in here, not the external walls, but the meeting, the spiritual tabernacle to which God has gathered us as we gather Sunday by Sunday. Well, let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you for the richness of your word. We bless you, Lord, that as we study these things, it opens up more and more to us as to what you would have us to do and what you have us to be. We confess, O Lord, that all too often we live in such a way that it would seem like there's no difference between us and the world. May it be that we would be, as it were, sacred Levites in all the service to which you called us. And it may not be as glamorous as that which the priest does, somebody else does in, in our church or in, the, in society, but in whatever way you've called us, O oh Lord, may it be unto you that we serve. And may we be living epistles of Christ. May we be creators of beauty. May we be those filled with your beauty. May we commend the gospel as we are in our homes may our children not see what's ugly in the relationship that we have with one another as husband and wives. In our church gatherings, may it not be that people would come in and see ugly fighting and ugly and nasty words and and, uh, desecration of your house in that way. But may it be that we are emblems of Christ, commending our beautiful Savior by our beautiful words and by our beautiful actions. Help us, O Lord, for we depend upon you. Redeem us more and more, we do pray, by your grace. Until that wonderful day, when we will gather in your presence, And we will praise you and serve you forever and ever. We pray these things in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen.